Money Miners, Tuesday 30th of May, and I'll tell you what, Wednesday, tomorrow is State of Origin, and geez, Trav, I might be sounding a bit rough on Thursday, mate. Ah, is this why you've requested the day off, mate? Oh, have I? Yeah, I might need a day off Thursday. I'll put the leave form in. Righto. Now, today, a bit of trouble in Namibia. Now, this story is evolving, but... Trav's going to bit of a, give a bit of an initial take. There is a bit happening here with Namibia, uranium country ownership. Going to get right into it. And Trav's also going to do a bit of a, a bit of a capital raise comparison in the lithium space. So you've recent, we've recently seen Leo Lithium, Sayona and Vulcan all do capital raisings, all very different. And I guess one's going to get a pat on the back. The other two, the share price has depreciated significantly. So... This is right up your alley, Trav. Now, let's first get into what's going on in Namibia. This is evolving. Just dropped today. The uh, Twitter friends have said, mm. get off your ass and cover this money of mine. They have indeed, mate. We were halfway through our, uh, our deep work of the day and um, got alerted that there's another story that's worth talking about. We were we were going into the Gascoigne uh, metallurgical results, but we're going to do that tomorrow now because this one's evolving. I will, before you start, Trav, I want to apologise to all the metallurgists and chemistry people out there. I incorrectly said manganese when we're talking about FEMGO <laughs> ratios. It's magnesium oxide, not manganese oxide. Mm-hmm. Apologies to everyone. I think it was a couple other mistakes I might have said as well. Magnesium oxide. Mate, did you know that I, um, I, did, a, I did a Saturday morning quiz with Brody the other day and uh, magnesium is an element that uh, only you can only find it in its compound form. Is that the right? There. Yeah, you can't, you can't get it by yourself. There you go. I, I wait to be corrected, but that was according to the Saturday morning quiz. We are putting ourselves out there. I think I said also in the uh, when we were talking Wailu Minkor yesterday, just around the how where the feeds are going. So, correction, Wailu has to get their own feed to supply the downstream JV with IGO. So, and any other corrections, let us know. I will uh, admit to them. <laughs> right, Trav, Namibia, what's happening? Oh, mate. Okay, so story is unfolding as we speak, right? Um, you've, there's this article in Bloomberg and there's also an article in, in mining.com and these articles are, are doing the rounds on social media and they're flowing through into you know the livestock price markets as well. So what, what we can see is um, from these articles is that Namibia appears to be considering taking minority stakes in mining companies amid increasing concerns of local ownership of their natural resources. Now, JD did a bit of a piece not long ago talking about how Tanzania, uh, how they're back in the game now but and the country ownership that's happening there and we did discuss will this be a bit of a catalyst for other countries to start looking to do the same and increase their ownership within countries. So yeah, it's could a talking be a follow-on or not. It's a big theme in, in the, the broader mining sector at the moment. Absolutely, mate. And and I think the the quote that's getting a lot of, you know, people worried is this quote from the Mines and Energy Minister, Tom Olwindo. And I just want to read this quote out. So as reported by Bloomberg, we are making a case that local ownership must start with the state, which holds ownership of our natural resources. 
the proposed state ownership should take the form where the state owns a minimum equity percentage in all mining companies and petroleum production for which it does not have to pay. It's a pretty, um, pretty strong quote, right? That's a good deal. <laughs> it's basically, yeah, implying the, the, um, the government should have a free carried interest in, in its natural resources projects, both mining and petroleum related. So pretty, um, pretty strong words there. And, and, you know, what you've seen is the market kind of be a bit scared of what could be a bit of a regime change in Namibia and what, why does this matter for the money miners, right? So who, who's, I guess, who's been affected so far? Who's got the biggest exposures in Namibia on the ASX, yeah. Trav? Well, the ASX, it's definitely the, the uranium names, right? Like Paladin, mate, they were down 20% today and they actually ended up going in a trading halt pending an announcement in relation to this quote. So, you know, TBA, what, what comes out there, but down 20%, absolutely smacked. You've got Deep Yellow there. They're down 12% as we speak, but the stock's actually, you know, kept trading. It's not in the halt yet. Lotus, they're down 6%. Bannerman, down 4.5%. There's also some gold developers that are impacted by this too. Um, WIA Gold, they're down 8%. Um, Ascari Metals, they've got a project in Namibia, but they're flat for the day. Um, and then, of course, there's, there's offshore oil and gas impact too, but that's less relevant to the ASX names out there. So, yeah. look, Matty, there's a bit to talk about here, and clearly it's um, having a pretty big impact on um, the stock market today. But let me just say it's bloody hard to actually locate a primary source for this statement. So I've done some digging, right, because if it's a statement from, you know, the minister – I'm, I'm really keen to actually just see where has he made this statement? What's the context? Because all of that matters, right? Like if, if it's a statement from a minister, it's a big difference if this statement is in the context of introducing new legislation or if it's in a statement in relation to a discussion that's happening about potential things that could be, be beneficial. There's a big difference and those, that context really matters. So I did some digging and, um, you know, when, when you look beyond just the Bloomberg article, what could I find? Well, I actually found um, a, a bit of a, a tweet on, on old Twitter from the Parliament of Namibia. And we'll put this one up on YouTube for the money miners. But what we see is um, there's a tweet out there and it says the two parliamentary standing committees of the NA Economics and Public Administration, and that's of natural resources, jointly organised a six-day oversight workshop on maximising potentials of mining and energy sector in Namibia from the 29th of May to the 3rd of June. So I think this is the, this is the forum in which these comments have been made. There's a six-day workshop um, and, you know, there's a bunch of parliamentary members there and it's, and it's all in relation to maximising the potential of the, you know, the, the mining and energy sector in Namibia. I think, I think this context is potentially lost in the stories doing the rounds because a workshop is a very different setting to, um, to, to, you know, to the sort of setting where there's proposed legislation. I'm not saying that this, you know, isn't, isn't a view that um, would ultimately result in legislation, but it, you know, a workshop isn't legislation. They're very different, right? So, so what's the, I guess, what's the sequence of events? This workshop's happened. Someone has leaked the comment from this natural resources I don't minister. Think it's, it's probably not leaked. There's probably, there's probably some. Proceedings from yeah, it, or? it's probably live. I'm not sure. There might be some live stream of it. There might be something, but yeah, like Bloomberg's picked up on a quote. Um, I mean, we've separately found an interview with a different minister who's sort of talking about some of the events. It's only got 200 views on YouTube, but it gives you a bit more contextual, you know, um, insight into what what the real thinking in the government of Namibia is. And I think, like, 
you read the headline there and, and it seems like you get the impression, oh no, here's another African nation that's looking to be like pretty extractive to its mining and petroleum industry. Maybe that is the case, but also maybe it's just a forum where there's a bunch of ideas presented and some of those ideas are good and have merit and some of them don't. Maybe there's um, a lot more to play out in this domain for a, a country and a, and a political regime that has an election next year as well. And like all of that stuff matters when we sort of weigh it all up. But it's certainly got some legs, this story, like the fact that um, Big time. Bloomberg's written the article on it. You've got companies down 20% and going into trading halts because of it. So there, you would take from that there is some significant substance to the story. Big time. Yeah, I, I made the substance. It's clearly material to, to markets. Um, but, you know, sometimes markets have a bit of a knee-jerk reaction to what seemed like, um, you know, like yeah, there's this fearful headline. So I, I just think we should, it's important to kind of contextualise it. And, you know, in some of my other digging, Maddie, I also found an article from earlier this month where members of the Namibian parliament were actually calling for heads to roll, including Tom Alwindo for grey areas in the law, which allowed damaging environmental activities without proper environmental assessment. So this is the Tom Alwindo that's made yep. this comment. Correct, yep. yeah. And th this article, it was sort of pointing at um, a, a project, which was the lithium joint venture between Jingfeng and Longfire Investments, in which apparently no environmental impact assessment was conducted. So, you know, the minister... Um, is clearly under a bit of public pressure at the moment. And that's the context for which these comments have surfaced today. Uh, you know, a minister um, under, under pressure for, you know, like not, not being um, forceful enough on the mining sector has, has sort of got a response now that's, you know, extremely kind of extractive when you, when you interpret it from the mining sector. But I think, like, we should definitely have a chat about what it would mean if these comments had a bit of um, a potential to become legislation because it's a, it's a really damn tricky thing to navigate for mining companies. You, 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 you really just want so much, you know, certainty of political regime. You want to know, you just want certainty on what those dynamics are going to be like um, out into the future because otherwise it's so damn hard to get financing if there's no certainty of political regime. And then especially when you're in the middle of studies or had studies completed based on a certain... Uh, government ownership or government rate um, and then throw this in the mix now just creates that whole uncertainty to whether these projects might become not as viable to construct. Yeah. So it throws a lot of things up into the air. Yeah, totally. And Namibia is often kind of advertised as a um, tier one political jurisdiction, tier one's thrown around pretty loosely in some instances, but um, it, its political regime in relation to mining is often advertised as... as um, you know, like a, like a pro-mining jurisdiction. And when you see statements like this coming from the minister, whether they hold weight or not, it really throws into question the stability of, you know, the mining um, regime that is there. And I think what we are absolutely seeing worldwide is higher commodity prices and um, a bunch of governments that are sort of, you know, seeing the real beneficiaries of those higher commodity prices being the international investors and not and not the you know the local people and they're wanting to extract a greater share than they currently are in that higher price environment. And then you've got the the effect this has on companies dealing with M Namibia as we speak. But then this, as we've previously mentioned, the flow-on effect to other countries that seem that might think well we might get on the front foot with our country ownership as well, mm -hmm. so which puts the whole um, 
international mining world up in up in the air a bit. Totally, and like is it like as you mentioned, mate? This is a theme we're seeing um, across a lot of countries at the moment. We saw Tanzania adopt the sixteen percent free carry interest model. We've talked about the issues with PNG. Um, I haven't talked about PNG for a while. Jeez, getting, yeah, there's a bit of PTSD again there. Yeah, yeah. but um, um, yeah, and they're God, they're going for fifty over fifty percent. So yeah, that's crazy shocking. over there. Uh, and there's other governments, right, that are making noise too, including Zimbabwe, Brazil, Chile, Indonesia, Philippines, and Peru. They're all pushing for more value from their minerals or increased state intervention. Because Chile is, they were nationalising. The lithium, was that correct? Yeah, I, th- I think nationalising, it's sort of, it's kind of um, a headline that was re- rebutted a, a little bit, but that was the headline that was grabbing grabbing attention. But yeah, like the, in one way, shape or form, they're, they're looking for increased state intervention um, and, you know, increased economic interest in these projects that are creating a lot, a lot of value. So it's, it's one to just watch and how it sort of plays out on a global scale is going to be interesting. I think um, what it is really going to increasingly do over time is... Um, highlight the the real premium um, of of having a mining project in a state where you have pretty much certainty of of mining of, of stable political mining regimes over time like western australia god they're going to uh, they're going to become slim pickings possibly these uh <laughs> these areas soon yeah. when you add in all the uh, political risk of these countries and then head over to north america for permitting risks when you um Dealing with that sort of stuff, it's finding that jurisdiction like Australia will be uh, very hard to come by. But, yeah. but I can't say like it. It definitely stands out more and more each time a story like this comes out. Big time. So right now we are servicing the retail punter today, Traven, going into Sayona versus Leo versus Vulcan because, geez, doesn't isn't there a good little retail following for these uh, hot little lithium stocks, mate? <laughs> now, Sayona, they did a capital raise and they've resumed trading today. Yep. And they've uh, gone – share prices dropped to the raise rate. We covered it a bit last week. We're going to expand on it today and I guess you're going to, you're going to look at how this raise has performed compared to Leo and Vulcan. Totally. Different raises, different outcomes. Absolutely right, mate. The three three lithium names, you know, they've all got decent uh, followings. They've um, and you know, lithium, a real hot commodity. Um, the three of them raised over a hundred million dollars each in this month of May, and I just thought it would be a pretty interesting story to tell on how these capital raisings were conducted and, and also how the market received them in the aftermath of them being completed too. It's good when you're on the tools, Trav. You know, when you're on the heavy on the tools and the spreadsheets and the graphs, mate, this is going to be <laughs> bloody intense and informative. Oh, no, it's not, it's not that informative. It's more commentary than it is charts, but I've got a couple of charts. Uh, so, yeah, Maddie, as you mentioned, Sayona, they came out of Trading Hot today. And, um, like, normally when a company comes out of Trading Hot, they obviously they do that Trading Hot at a discount. You know, a 15% discount is pretty normal. But you, what you want to see is when they leave the tr- the trading halt and resume trading, you want to see them go back up to a, what, what they sort of were before. So, you know, people who bought at a discount, sort of, you know, they were incentivized because they were getting a discount. You, you, you don't always expect it to trade exactly what it was before, but you kind of hope that, um, that, it, that it doesn't bloody just trade at what the offer price was. There's not much incentive to, to kind of invest if you think that's what it's going to do. And what we saw Sayona do when they resumed trading they, they did the capital raise at a 15% discount or 18 cents per share and they resumed trading today at 18 cents per share. 
So, you know, 15% off the share price. God forbid if it goes below the offer price, then you'd really have the shits. Yeah, totally. And, and there's often a bit of a, a wait until the shares um, are allotted. So you kind of sometimes have to fork out the money when the share price is already lower yeah. and then you're, then you're real shitty. I suppose when, I suppose for the big investors, but in to, to put that amount of money in, you can't really buy it at 18 cents because there isn't isn't the volume. So I suppose there is the benefit. You might pay a little bit more, but you get a bigger batch that you yep. wouldn't you might not yep, have been able slippage, to buy yeah. straight keep away. Keep in mind these these shares you, they're in the indexes. They're they're, they're pretty liquid. Yeah. You can normally you know yeah do do pretty sizable volume in them without moving the share prices too much, just because they've got that index liquidity. So let's um let's have a chat through them. There's there's you know, the three of them, they all happened in the last month, all in May. Falcon, they raised $109 million. Sayona raised $200 million, And Leo Lithium raised $106 million. So three, lithi- three lithium names, three capital raisings over $100 million. And yet when you look at the month-to-date share price performances of these three stocks, you've got Leo up 61%, Sayona down 10%, and Vulcan down 38%. Wow. So that's pretty damn different share price performance behavior, right? Other ends of the spectrum there, aren't we? Oh, yeah. And, and they're all lithium. So you just think, what's going on here? Um, and when you break them apart, I think you can really see that the three of these were received very differently. Let's, um, let's take a look at the three of them one by one, Matty. Vulcan, they were the first to raise on the 4th of May. And they've they've continued dive. So you see the drop there from when they've when they raised, and then they've continued going down before that. So the people that participated in that would be uh, underwater, not very chuffed. Yeah. So yeah, exactly right. They raised 109 million bucks, fourth of May, fully underwritten by Canaccord and Bank of America. This raise it came when the company seemed to already have a pretty hefty cash balance already. At 31st of March in their quarterly, they reported 112 million euros or about 100 million, 180 million Australian dollars equivalent um, cash at, at bank. So before they actually launched the equity raise, we could see that about 7% of Vulcan's shares were sold short. That was the 15th highest um, short interest percentage on the ASX at the time. And since then, that number has come off all the way down to about 3%. What's caused that? Well, a good portion of that is just short sellers who would have closed that position via buying shares. So in the they've, they've, yeah, they've short, they've shorted with because of the anticipated fund, a gap in funding, and then participated in the raise. Exactly. But now they've been burned on that. They should have kept the short. Yeah. And so, like, let's do the math on on the value of the business now. Their cash at last quarter, so that you know, one eighty Australian equivalent plus whatever cash they raised. In the placement, you add the two together and it's close to about $300 million cash. Of course, they probably spent some of that along the way. but And then you've only got a market cap of um, $600 million today. So if you back out what the enterprise value of Vulcan is implied by the market today, it's only north, it's just north of $300 million. And you know, when we covered it last time, we spoke about the pretty significant risks there for equity investors even after the release of that DFS. So... The question I have, um, you know, for Vulcan and, and what I think the market had is, um, like, what could they have done better here? You've seen that share price roll off since, right? I think they would have been far better served by actually de-risking the project further before raising that money. 
they had a big cash buffer already and they could have used that cash to demonstrate to the market that some of the risks highlighted in their DFS aren't as substantial anymore. You know, could they, could they show that there was um, commercial manufacturing avenue for their proprietary solvent, Volsorb? Um, could they show that electrolyzers can be commercially used in lithium salts? These were the risks we talked about in our last bit, right? Could they've waited for some of the resource drilling results to come out and confirm their flow rate assumptions in the DFS. All of these are kind of big question mark sort of risks that are still there in the DFS, which maybe they could have used their existing cash balance to fund in order to de-risk it and then raise more equity. So do you think they are, uh, those risks that you've outlined are a big driver, one of the main drivers at the, at the moment? I, th- I think like, just think about the strategy, right? So if these are options that Vulcan had, their options are to de-risk the project and then raise cash, but instead they raise cash and they're using a wider cash balance to hopefully de-risk it. But, you know, doing it in that order, I think it just, it just poses the question, like, like why did they do it in that order? You know, because they're, they're diluting shareholders more now before it's de-risked and hopefully if you de-risked it, you benefit from the share price over time and there's less dilution when you need to raise the cash. So I think it just poses the question and, and equity holders rightfully ask why. Um, and I think that's why you saw the raise kind of conducted at a 17% discount. And then when it traded the next day, it was down another 17% on top of that month to date, it's down 38%. I guess what's, what's your views on, um, your take on dilution like this, if you're continuously raising, diluting, continuously raising, diluting again, does that sort of compound over time and make it difficult to puts them in a bit of a mess that they find hard to get out of with the future gains. It, it's okay to raise money as long as you are using that money to add value to your project. And I think like the way I think about um, the dynamics of a developer, a developer has to fund their development via equity dilution because they're not getting any cash in the door any other way, right? So as long as the value you're adding um, on a per share basis is more than the dilution that you're encountering. You're sort of, you know, you're, you're moving in the right direction. Um, but in this in this situation, you kind of don't want to dilute too much because then a, then a company's left with just a huge cash balance that they can't necessarily use effectively or allocate properly in the right period of time in order to really create value meaningfully. So, you know, in this case. The whole company's worth 600 billion bucks and they've got 300 million of cash, you know, less whatever they spent since the end of the quarter. But it's a lot of cash for a, for a $600 million company um, and a lot of dilution sort of experienced on the way there. And I think the share price sort of coming off is just in relation to the question marks that shareholders would have had about um, the strategy here. Yeah. Right. Now, Sayona. Yep. Next one, 200 million bucks. We did talk about this on Friday. Yep. Heavily shorted, six. It was six most uh, shorted stock on the ASX, eight point three percent. Now, I think from memory, when Line Town there was the short squeeze on Line Town, I think they were about nine percent shorted. Yep. So eight point three, and they were one of the most shorted. So eight point three percent, very high. So very high. Right. Yeah, super high short interest rate, eight point three percent. We talked about it Friday, um, and I think the two hundred million dollar quantum, the size, definitely came as a bit of a surprise. So you know, this one, Maddie, there's some similarities to Vulcan, but there's also some real differences too. And I think, you know, we should, we should absolutely talk about that. Unlike Vulcan who had 
ample cash. Sayona appeared to have a funding problem during ramp up here. Some additional capital was required to help get them through that interim sort of funding problem. Um, but similar to Vulcan, having the option to de-risk the project further before launching the raising, I actually think Sayona had the option to de-risk the market's understanding of the commercialization at the North American Lithium Project too. Um, on the episode on Friday, we spoke about what those potential options could have been. And those options that I kind of ran through were they could have potentially provided guidance to the market on the product spec that they were getting or that they were producing and um, provided some indicative payability for it, given they've already got first concentrate there. They could have entered into a prepay agreement to reduce the ultimate equity dilution. Um, or they could have waited for the carbon at PFS as a potential positive catalyst to, to launch the equity raise off. So, you know, like in my mind, those are all sort of three potential options that could have paved for a different um, equity raise strategy, which may have yielded a more favorable result. And any one of those would have de-risked the market's understanding of the North American lithium project to some extent. Um, and similar to Vulcan, instead equity investors are left wondering, well, why didn't they do that? So it's no surprise to see them open today at the offer price and not bounce up, you know, to the price they were pre-raised, that, that 21 cents. Yeah. Now, Leo Lithium, the pat on the back, they've had a great performance this month post their raise. Um, whether, that, whether that's some interest from other parties looking to secure them because they have had a good rise, same as uh, we recently saw Delta Lithium have a 20% spike. Um, haven't heard anything on that yet, but there seems to be a bit of movement in some high-quality lithium stocks or, and so whether some M&As around the corner, we don't know, but... Yeah, so yeah. So let's look at like Leo's equity raise strategy um, and, and compare it to, to Vulcan and Sayana, all right? They, they did things very differently and... Um, I kind of take my hat off to them. The, the key thing that they've done differently is they've combined their capital raising with a big de-risking positive news catalyst. Um, they raised $106 million in a strategic placement with Gang Feng announced yesterday. They cleverly agreed to this placement at a 6.5% premium to the share price, not a that, discount. That sure helps. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And Gang Feng's happy to do that, right? Because they get enhanced off-tech terms. And, and, you know, Leo are happy to do it because they get a commitment to an expansion plan and they have a partner for a future downstream conversion facility where they would get some exposure to um, hydroxide product too. So, you know, win-win on that front. And they've all, again, fan of uh, technically they've already made good money on their 6.5% premium anyway because yeah. it's kept going up. <laughs> exactly. You're right. Your post-announcement, the share price goes up even further on top of that. It's now 25% higher than it was pre-announcement with Gang Feng. And unlike an ordinary capital raising where you have to do it at a discount and you give stock to people who maybe aren't long-term holders. And um, this one, it all goes to Gang Feng. So there's no overhang on the stock after the raise with, you know, people who might might sell it because they, they're not really typical long-term holders. Um, it's a great, great deal by Simon Hay and the Leo Lithium team. Um, you know, the combined, uh, they've, they've combined this capital raise with a, a positive announcement and um, a material de-risking event. Mate, Trav... Great, mm. great comparison, mate. Mm. Yep, it, it makes it um, makes it easier for, for Simon to get his uh, performance rights uh, when you compare it to, to companies like those who are in the uh, relative share share price performance pool. I think I think lithium M and A is 
on the cards soon in our news talks, Trav. You can feel that, as I said, looking at Leo, looking at Delta, um, yeah, it's all, I guess it's going to, all going a bit quiet in that. Everyone's sitting on their hands a bit, but they could come in a flurry soon. We're still waiting on a bit to uh, get into production, aren't we? So Line Town, obviously, still waiting to get there. End of the year, they're going to start underground mining. Um, in terms of big projects coming online, it feels mm-hmm. like it all needs a bit of a push along. Oh, mate, I'm sure you'll be pushing. We will be. <laughs> right. Recap. Re- recap. Now, AFR, there was a, you'd call a bit of a heated article in there. So in regards to the, our favourite topics, St. Barbara Silver Lake Genesis. So as we said, last week we saw St. Barbara Board put in their announcement correcting the record and went over all the reasons why what happened in their engagement or and end up being no engagement with Silver Lake. That was their side of the story. But now there is, well, you can't say it's uh, leaked emails because it says it was emails from David Quinn living to St. Barbara, I think it was to Tim Netcher, mm-hmm. and the email was saying they wanted to engage, but St. Barbara said that we don't have time. We've got mm. all this, uh, all this other stuff on. So it's obviously, it's it reads like it's been leaked to Peter Kerr at the AFR, but it's obviously been sent to them him by Silver Lake because it's it's a Silver Lake person's email. Unless it well, was maybe I can't. Ex- maybe Unless it was leaked by Saint Barbara. Which well, <laughs> maybe, maybe I can't assume that. But yeah, yeah it's anyway, it's, it's correcting fair. the record to a corrected record. So yeah, it's um, <laughs> I think everyone that whole story is flogging a bit of a dead horse. I did love, I did love the quote um, calling Silver like tire kickers. Tire kickers is normally the yeah, word. What you, is a tire kicker? I read so, that. I'm like, what is a tire kicker? Oh, AFR love that term, but tire kickers is like normally if you're running a sale process, tire kickers are the people who are in the process who aren't real serious bidders. They're normally you know tiny market. Cabs uh, don't really have any bidding capability. Tire kickers is not a word you would use for an ASX 200 company. That's no, why it's so very that, interesting. But that, but that tire kickers was from a St. Barbara representative. Yes, yes, yes that exactly. Said that yeah. They commented, yeah. they didn't say who the rep was, but I reckon I could guess. Yeah. Well, they use that in the headline, right? Because of the irony of calling you know, an ASX 200 company a tire kicker. Well, the, <laughs> considering the board is. Uh, 50-50 male females, I'm going to put my money on that the tie kicker comment came from a male. Mm. On on Barb's? From Barb's. Right. Wouldn't you think? I couldn't see a female saying them. Well, it's the same Barb representative. It doesn't necessarily have no, to be a board. It doesn't have to be a board Could member. be an You'd advisor. Think, yeah, I don't know. Could have been. Yeah. Interesting. Who said the tie kicker quote, everyone? Find out. Let us know. Right. Uh, now, tomorrow we're going to talk about Gascoigne's Met results. Not just the Met results, but what do they mean? We've had some uh, great input from a metallurgical expert, which I'm gonna, we're, we're going to give him an anonymous pseudonym from, based on the most famous metallurgist of all time. You will find out tomorrow. So and we're going to get into what cyanide leaching is and our gravity circuits and cyanide circuits work. So, And I'm interested, you've got many hats you know, sometimes you. Well, the- I, did, I didn't have this bloody hat until this morning, and I've gone deep. And I, I thought, I'd travel. I thought this whole arrangement was that I could just sit here and talk shit and not have to learn anything. And you and Jonas, but you obviously. Didn't yeah, well, Jonas the- is away, so we're a bit. bit yeah, up, I, but I great. thought that. Yeah, I, I assumed you'd know heaps about metallurgy. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so yeah, stay tuned for that tomorrow, everyone. Now, Tieto, MD, Cajun Wang. 
Cajun. Is that how you pronounce it? I always thought Kagan, but I could Kagan, be corrected. Kagan, yeah. not Cajun, the spice. Kagan Wang is stepping down the from the position and retiring from the board. So Matt Wilcox is filling the position. The company have reaffirmed guidance for H2, half to 2023 at 105 to 120,000 ounces at US $875 per ounce, $875 to $975. Uh, now, AVL, Australian Vanadium, they've executed a $49 million grant agreement with the Australian government to provide further funding for their Vanadium project. So the funding scope covers... All stages of the value chain, initial payment of $9.8 million scheduled for June 2023. Hopefully the government don't pull that grant like they did with Pure Battery Metals. I was having to think about that, that Pure Battery Metals one, right? Because it was a PCAM facility. And then mm. um, what happened after that was the IGOY, Lou, Quinana thing. That's going to be a PCAM facility. So I wonder if the whole kind of um, government sort of realised that there's no need for two PCAM facilities in the same state. And another piece of uh, vanadium news, Mr. Ricciardo. So you've got Richmond Vanadium, RVT. So they've got a, a like a clay vanadium deposit over east. So it's not a hard rock one like AVL. It's a it's a free dig one, but different processing yet to be determined. Uh, so the MD of that's actually stepped down, Sean Reng. He's going to on non-executive director and uh, – John Price, who was the MD of Horizon, is stepping up to MD. So a bit of movement in the uh, vanadium space. You are the vanadium expert, Maddie. I did. I do. I, I do know a bit about. I learned a bit about redox flow batteries, and like that's the best thing about this, Trav. We are forced to learn shit because we have to say it and be right. Whereas if I was just skim reading, I just wouldn't even go to the detail and she'd be right. But we don't have, we're, we're not forced to be right. We just have to admit, to, admit when we are wrong. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, when we started um, trying to venture in, when I ventured into nickel stuff, um, yeah, obviously made a couple of mistakes. Magnesium. Jeez, wait, wait till the meta, wait till the metallurgical one. We'll see how many bloody mistakes I make in that one. But I'm confident. Right out, Trav. Hooteroo. Hey, JD, if you're listening. Mate, can, JD, if you are listening, we would love a bit of a Namibian update from right in Namibia. If we can phone you in, that would be wonderful. Good man. The information contained in this episode of Money of Mine is of general nature only and does not take into account the objectives, financial situation or needs of any particular person. Before making any investment decision, you should consult with your financial advisor and consider how appropriate the advice is to your objectives, financial situation and needs.